0: We say a lot in RUF uh, that God loves us enough to meet us where we're at, and God loves us enough not to leave us there. Both of those things are true and are critical to this good news message. He loves us enough to meet us where we're at, and he loves us enough not to leave us there. What this is saying is you don't have to get your stuff together before Jesus will love you. In fact, as we've seen and as we've been saying, Jesus loves us when we don't have it all together. Right, he loves us when we're not powerful, when we're not well, when we're not righteous. In fact, when we're his enemies. Right? We saw this last week. Like God proves his love for us in this, that while we were weak, while we were his enemies, he died for us. Jesus loves us enough to meet us where we're at, and this is important: Jesus loves us enough not to leave us there. To borrow an illustration from C.S. Lewis, Jesus meets us in a parking lot where we're playing with mud pies amongst glass and gravel. And he says, come with me. I want to take you to the beach. He meets us where we're at. He doesn't leave us there. At some point in time, though, the question comes, well, why can't I just stay put? Like, I'm glad that Jesus meets me where I'm at. But but do I really need to go where Jesus leads? Like, if I can't earn my salvation and if Jesus died for all of my sins, why bother living a godly life? Like, why can't I just stay put? Why can't I just keep on sinning? That's the question that's set before us in this section of the letter that we're looking at this semester, the letter of Romans. And I want to pick up chapter six and read verses 15 to 23. You'll see it up here. You can also follow along uh, on the handout that's there on your table. This is what Paul writes to us tonight. This is God's word for us tonight, too. It says, well, then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we've given you. Now you're free from your slavery to sin, and you've become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using this illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thanks for bringing us together on this Wednesday night and thank you too for giving us your word. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see what we need to see from this passage tonight. Open our ears, help us to hear what it is you want us to hear. And would you make our hearts sensitive and soft so that we might receive and believe everything you want to impress upon us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you all, the question that we're asking and hopefully answering tonight is found right there in verse one of our passage. Since God has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Paul answers, of course not. Now, Paul's not saying that it's impossible for Christians to sin anymore. I mean, Christians can, in fact, sin. <laughs> we can and we do. Right? None of us in this room was perfect before we followed Jesus. And if you're following Jesus, you're not perfect now either. Right? We can and we do fall short. But even though we can sin, something has shifted in the life of the Christian like since their salvation. Like on this side of salvation, something shifts in their heart where it's like, while it's possible for me to do it, I don't want to anymore. Like I'm still tempted, and I still am prone to give in to temptation. But that this heart of mine, it's now like a battleground. And what maybe never pinged my conscience before does now. And you can call this a change of heart, you can call this a change of allegiance, you can call this being popped back into place, which will make sense in a moment. But it's this that I want to call like this is what I want to delve into deeper. And sort of flush out with you. I want to call your attention to verses 20 to 23. I'm going to read this again. Because this is really, I think, the heart of what Paul is saying in this section. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. What was the result? Or what was, what was that getting you? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do. Things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, what Paul is saying in these verses is that there is a freedom that leads to slavery, and there is a slavery that leads to freedom. I'll say it again, and it's a paradox, And as I say that, I kind of picture, this is the dad joke in me, but I imagine Willa being like, what's a paradox? (laughs) Paradox. Different, right? There's freedom that leads to slavery. And there is a kind of slavery or submission that leads to freedom. Okay, a paradox is a statement that seems absurd at first or seems contradictory. But upon further reflection, upon closer examination, it proves to be true. I want to give you an example of this, this idea that there is uh, freedom that leads to slavery and a kind of like a slavery or submission that leads to freedom. Here's my example. When your shoulder is in its joint, let's just say like when your upper arm bone is like locked in its socket, you can move your arm in just about any direction, right? Movement is free, it's fluid. When your bone is in its socket... It's not going anywhere. You can do all sorts of things. Right? You can dribble a basketball. You can like swing a bat or like a tennis racket. You can pick up a book to read. You can paint a picture. If you've got a kid like Willie, you can toss her in the air like joyfully, not throw her and <laughs> toss her. Like The point being, you can do lots of things. And you can do lots of things because the bone is locked in its socket, okay? What happens, though, if the upper arm bone is popped out of its socket? What if that bone leaves the shoulder blade? Picture like William Wallace in like, that movie Braveheart, like, freedom, he like leaves the socket. What happens then? Well, friends, nurses, you know this better than most, what you have there is a dislocated shoulder, and dislocated shoulders hurt. When the shoulder is freed from its socket, as it were, you are not free. You're in a lot of pain. Your mobility goes down, not up. And this is the paradox that's at the heart of Paul's argument. There is a kind of freedom that leads to slavery or to a diminishment, a diminishment of your life. Your life is lesser, not richer, because of this freedom. There's a freedom. Right? that leads to slavery. And there's a kind of slavery or a submission that actually leads to true freedom, to the good life. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he comes to a bunch of dislocated people. Instead of living in God's love, sort of joined or jointed to him, like living in socket with him, we're all trying to do life on our own terms. And we've already talked about this this semester. We've seen what this looks like. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? God's over here in his righteous corner. We're over here dislocated, right? living life on our own terms, doing whatever we want. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Doing whatever you want, doing whatever makes you feel good, does not mean that you are free. It means that you're out of control. It means that you're living life out of socket. And life out of socket is painful. You can call it freedom. But y'all, look, there's a kind of freedom that is its own form of slavery. Jesus says to you, as he says to me, for freedom, I've set you free. The freedom that Jesus has in mind is not the freedom to do whatever you want That's bondage. That is not true freedom. Jesus has come to give you true freedom. Life as it was meant to be lived. Life in all of its fullness, he says. It's what we read about in verse 23. What's called here in our passage, eternal life. This is what Jesus wants to give to you. Life to the full. It's not just a life that's going to go on forever, but a quality of life that will fit in With forever. And the only way that you're going to experience that true life, true freedom, true mobility is if Jesus takes your dislocated life and he pops it back into place, as it were. If he takes your dislocated life and he pops you back in to the socket of God's love because it's there that you experience true freedom and mobility. I want you to imagine a kid who's grown up with like a dislocated shoulder. Okay, this kid wants to do all sorts of kid things. He wants to ride a bike, climb the monkey bars, play dodgeball, like, play, like just do all the kid things. But everything this kid does is painful because of his or because of her dislocated shoulder. Can you, pick, can you imagine this? Well, one day, like a grown-up shows up to the kid and asks, like, does your shoulder hurt? And the kid says, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it hurts. Well, the, shul- the, the grown-up reaches out to touch his or her shoulder. But when the child sees that hand come to the shoulder, the child backs off. It's like, don't touch it. That hurts. Like, and it's always hurt. And the child's afraid. The grown-up, full of compassion, says to the child, it doesn't have to be this way. And the grown up assures the child that it's going to be okay. And with one quick movement, the grown up pops that kid's shoulder into place. And tears fill the child's eyes. But they're not tears of pain, they're tears of joy. They're tears of relief. Because as that kid moves that shoulder around, that shoulder that once drooped, that shoulder that once was like a a place of real pain, that kid is now able to do this for the very first time. And says, again, like with tears in the eyes, tears of joy, tears of of relief, this is what throwing a ball is supposed to feel like. I, I get it now. This is what, like skipping a jump rope is supposed to feel like. It's not supposed to be painful. It's supposed to be fun. I get it now. Like this, like waving to my friends, like that's what it's supposed to feel like. Friends, I want you to picture this because this in a way is what happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. When we allow him to touch our painful, dislocated lives, And we allow him to sort of rejoin, rejoin us to the Father. Oh, this is what my life could be like. This is what life could feel like. This is what my life could be and should be. Because for freedom, he set us free. The question that we're wrestling with, is if Jesus dies for the forgiveness of all of our sins, what's the motivation to live a good life? Why not keep on sinning? And the logic of this passage is, listen, if you had a dislocated shoulder and it's been popped back into place, why would you ever want it to be dislocated again? Why would you ever want that again? Right? Right? That's the logic. Would you ever want that? Again, Paul says, of course not. Right? That's why. Um, but I understand, listen, I understand where this question comes from. Jesus meets us where we're at, doesn't he? And he doesn't leave us there. But as we begin to take walks in his direction as we begin to, like, learn and to follow him, there is still very much a strong tug or pull to keep doing what we've always done. Does that make sense? Like, use that analogy again. Like, Jesus meets us in a parking lot where we were making mud pies, you know, by that pool of gasoline and just playing with grit and gravel and glass. He's like, look, kid, like, this kind of sucks. (laughs) How about we go to the beach? And you're like, okay. And you start to follow, but you're like, I kind of like mud pies too. (laughs) Like, that's what I'm used to. That's what I'm accustomed to. And now you sort of feel this tug, right, between the beach and this life that you've always known. And you can get, logically, you're like, look, I know that this is better. I know that Jesus is calling me to something more. I actually even know, too, the logic of like what I've just described, like that dislocated life is painful. This is better. I understand the why, why we want to keep going with Jesus. But maybe then as a follow up question, it's not so much why, like, why should I not sin? But like, how do I stop? Right. Like, how how do I put one foot in front of the other? as I start to follow after Jesus. I think Christians who put feet to faith and they begin to follow Jesus out of that parking lot towards the beach, they understand two things from this passage. They understand what we've said, like there is a freedom that leads to slavery and that there's a slavery or submission that leads to life. I put it to you simply this, like, Those Christians who are able to kind of put feet to faith, they know, man, sin sucks. And Jesus is good. And he really wants my good. Look, nobody is teleporting into holiness. Like nobody is like put their faith in Jesus and all of a sudden, whoop, like they're perfect people. That doesn't happen. Nobody teleports to holiness. You walk there. You walk there. And walking is a process. It's one foot in front of the other. And sometimes it feels like slow going. But we walk there. We're we're walking out of the parking lot towards the beach. And what motivates you to put one foot in front of the other is not fear anymore. You're not motivated by fear. You're motivated by love. You're motivated by trust. You're motivated by love, knowing that Jesus really loves me and I'm learning to love him too. And you're motivated by this trust that like, wow, life is better when I'm popped back in the socket. Like this is actually better than that dislocated shoulder. Like Jesus is actually good for me. And wants good for me. And that trust that maybe starts off small with that first step, it begins to grow as we walk with him. As we begin to learn and to trust. Like, yeah, his ways really are right. That becomes just increasingly more and more your motivation to keep going. Love from him. Love for him and trust. I want to give you three illustrations from my own experience of this. And listen... This is not illustrating that I'm a perfect person <laughs> because I'm not. If you know me well, you know that that's absolutely true. I'm not a perfect person. But what I do want to illustrate for you is how you can be motivated to follow after Jesus and that motive is not fear. That motive is love and trust. Like In my own imperfect ways, I want to show you how that's just registered in my life. As some, of you know, as some of you know, I didn't become a Christian until I was around 25, 26 years old. I was baptized in May of 2008. I was 26 then, but I became a Christian before that. I don't know when. It was like a Tuesday. But it was around that time, 25, 26, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, it just lights up in my mind and in my heart. Like, this is true. This is real. I want you to do some math. If I became a Christian when I was 25, 26, at least in my story, that means I had a decade of practicing bad habits, particularly with regards to sex and just relationships. When I began to follow Jesus, I became well aware, as I'm sure many of you are, that Jesus is clear that sex should stay within the bounds of marriage. Jesus is clear about this. He says sex is a good thing, but it has its place. And this is not what I had practiced. It's not not what I had practiced. So, what was I going to do now that I'm starting to like follow Jesus? I knew Jesus paid for all my sins. I knew he paid the price for any future ones. So why not just keep doing what I was used to doing? Why not? Here's the move. First, I began to really recognize the ways that my old way of life was painful. Began to see that, yeah, that dislocated life hurt. It hurt me and it hurt other people too. As I would put it, sin sucks. But two, I began to trust Jesus with this part of my life. And with my body, knowing that if I did, I would experience life as he intended. And that is going to be good. And friends, this has proven to be true. My first relationship with a girl, like after I started walking with Jesus, I made a conscious decision for the first time in my like, relational life not to have sex with that person before marriage. And I'm really glad that we made that decision because I didn't marry that girl <laughs> And I'm really glad, like, we wouldn't have been good together. But the fact that we were not having sex together made it really easy for us to break up when we needed to break up. I'm just put that out there. When I met and then started to date Megan, we also made a conscientious choice not to have sex before marriage. And that forced us to really get to know each other with our words and not with our bodies. To practice to really get to know each other's minds before we actually, like, took that step into marriage. And I'm glad for that. Like, the wisdom, like, the goodness of Jesus, who's, like, again, he says sex is good. It just has its place. Like, as we both trusted Jesus with our lives and we kind of put one foot in front of the other, it has worked out. And I'm grateful. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's good. I don't just want to use this example because I don't want you to think that this is like the only place where we experience dislocation. I know it's e- like sex is very much on your mind as it is probably mine and other people's. Like we, we live in a hypersexual culture. It's college. <laughs> like I get it. <laughs> right. But there are all kinds of ways, right, where we can experience dislocation because there's all different kinds of things that we can relate to. It's not just people and The opposite sex or just sex in general. Like, how about the ways that we relate to our time? I had bad habits with that too. Like, it's easy. We live in a hyperproductive, sort of like workaholic culture. And I was just as prone to be a workaholic as you are. The culture just says, go, 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 go. Well, what would it look like for me to not live that way, but to follow Jesus? Again, not being motivated by fear, not being like, if I am a workaholic, Jesus is going to consign me to hell. Like, that's not my motive. But, like, what would it look like for me to follow him and trust him as I, like, in this regard, in this way of my life? Part of it had to just be like, yeah, the old ways of relating to time and my work, it kind of sucked. It was painful. I was hurting myself, I was hurting other people. Working seven days a week was not loving to people in my life. It wasn't, it wasn't kind of me. God says, look, here's my intention for you. Work six days, rest the seventh. This, by the way, is in the same list as like, don't murder, don't cheat, like don't steal. Like part of the Ten Commandments, this is one of them. Work six days, rest a seventh. And you're like, well, why? It's this. Slaves work seven days a week. That's what slaves do. You're not a slave. For freedom, Jesus has set you free. Slaves work seven days a week. Don't live like one. Don't be defined by your productivity. Don't be defined by your work. Let Jesus define you. Let your worth and your value come from him. And you know one really good way to practice that? Lay your work down. Just rest. I'm a human being, not a human doing. Right? Allow yourself to be God's creature and God's world. And just for a day, receive life as a gift to you. It's not earned. You didn't get it because you're striving, but you're getting it because you've got a good Father who loves you. Again, what's the motive here? It's not fear, it's love, it's trust. Jesus is good, and he wants good for me. I'm going to take steps in this direction. Y'all tracking with me? I'm going to give you one more illustration, one more example. Here's one. Tithing. (laughs) Money. How do you relate to your money? I did not grow up in a family that went to church. I didn't pay close attention to the way my parents spent their money. Odds are you don't pay that close attention to the way your parents spend their money either. Which is why, like, when I came to faith at the age of 25, 26, I had never really heard anybody talk about what it looks like to relate to money faithfully. This was new to me. How should we save and how should we spend our money? Why should we be generous people? Again, the motive here is not fear. It's not like, hey, if you don't give money away, if you're not generous, like God's going to send you to hell. That's not the motive. It's like, hey, God's really generous to you. And when you taste and you experience his generosity, it's going to actually make you become a generous person. Seeing the ways that I relate to my money, like the dislocated ways of relating to my money, maybe holding tightly to it, that hurt people. That hurt me. Like, it was making me stingy. It was making me greedy, obsessive. I don't want to do that anymore. So, like, how can, I, how can I live a different way? Let's follow Jesus. He says, hey, you don't want to be gripped by your money? How about you loosen your grip on it? Right? Here's the command. Give a tenth. A tithe. That's what it means. Give a tenth away. Don't give it all. Just give a tenth to the church. Give a tenth, right, to kingdom causes. And this is, as soon as I started collecting a paycheck, that's what I started to do. Um, you all are not doing that. You're students. You're like in debt. <laughs> but someday you'll make money. And here's the thing. When you do, give a tenth of it away. Just start. Like, even if you're making only $10 an hour, just, you see, one of those dollars is like that That one dollar. is not mine. It's, it's for the church. It's for charity. And I promise you, the effect of this is that you will, you will find I actually have way more than enough, and I'm actually really charitable, and I'm experiencing joy, and I love actually like, it, what a privilege to be able to like give my money away, and to help and support other people, and I am like set free from greed and consumerism. Like it's it's kind of magic, it's awesome. I'm just giving you these three examples, and I would love to get lunch or coffee, and we can talk about a whole lot more. But I want you to see tonight that the motive for living the Christian life, it's not fear. It's love and trust. We're following Jesus. We're doing what he says because we recognize that old way of life, that freedom was its own kind of slavery. Jesus has drawn us into and has popped us into a way that is better there's a freedom that leads to slavery and there's a slavery that leads to true freedom. Can you keep on sinning? Can you go back to the way things used to be? On one level, of course you can, but why would you want to?